is, well, the Psalms in general are the songbook or the, the hymnal of the Bible. Now, we often think of them as prayers, and we often use them as prayers, and that's entirely appropriate. Jesus used them as prayers at times, but the Psalms are primarily the, the hymn book of the Bible. They're primarily songs, and they would have been sung in a worship service a lot like this one. Psalm 32, like many of the Psalms, was written by David, King David. You, and you could put it this way, that, that Psalm 32 was written by a believer. He was written by a believer about his resistance to confession, his need for confession, and the blessing of God's forgiveness when he experienced it. So it's written by a believer to be sung by believers. Now, I say that not to say this is only for believers, not in any way. In fact, it's, it is good news to anyone and everyone. But really, I, I say that to make the point that this is a psalm describing a normal, a common experience in the Christian life. So let's turn to our passage. We're in, as I said, Psalm 32. Here now the reading of God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, how we need your word, how we need your word to work in us, to tell us who you are and tell us who we are. Father, as we study your word, would your, you send your Holy Spirit to work on our hearts and make us more like Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was reading an article about the movie Oppenheimer, which came out last month, I guess. I actually haven't seen it, so I'm not recommending it. I'm not recommending it. Um, but in the article, it was describing the set that Christopher Nolan, the director, made for this movie. And he had kind of gone and seen all these sites out in the desert, right, where there's, this is the lab where they're developing the atomic bomb. And he couldn't find anything, so in the, he wasn't really satisfied with what they could do with CGI, so he went and he built an entire replica Los Alamos research facility in the middle of the New Mexico desert. And um, just completely built it. And like, if, if you were to stand there, you could look just 360 degrees, and there was absolutely nothing except New Mexico desert. And he built this town, this community, this life in the middle of the desert. Now, 
I bring this up because that image could serve as a metaphor for how a song like Psalm 32 would have hit the ears of ancient peoples. And this is why the, 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 the gods of, of the ancient world were known, were in fact famous for being petty, for being angry, for being greedy, vindictive, bloodthirsty, right? In fact, if you, I don't, you maybe read this book in, in high school, I think I did, the, the book The Odyssey. And now the, the main character of the story, his name's Odysseus, and he's not a god, but he's, he acts out the values of the gods of that society uh, throughout the book. And kind of the climax is when he comes home, he's been gone for, I think, a couple decades. I don't really remember, but a long time. And, and he comes home, and the climax is when he takes out his bow, and he just takes revenge, and he starts just shooting into this crowd of men that have been living in his house and kind of uh, disrespecting him. Never mind that they've been disrespecting his wife, it's that they've been disrespecting him, and he gets revenge, right? He's not a god, he's acting out the values of the gods of that society, and if you have petty, vindictive, angry, bloodthirsty gods, what do you get? Well, you get a society in which honor and reputation are the greatest good, and the only solution is bloodshed and revenge, right? So that is the desert into which the God of the Bible comes. And in Exodus 34, God, he tells Moses, this is my name, this is who I am. He comes to Moses and he says, I am the Lord, the, Lo the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those words, this God, is totally different. It must have felt like life in the middle of a desert, like an oasis in a desert, that God would be forgiving, not petty, right? That he would be long-suffering, not angry and impatient and greedy. In Psalm 32, in fact, so many of the Psalms actually carry echoes of Exodus 34, but Psalm 32 does absolutely. It talks about God forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. You'll see those words. But Psalm 32 is a description of what life looks like and feels like when this is the God that you serve. What does it feel like to know this God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? It's like an oasis in a desert. Now, there have been a number of studies that, you know, they're starting to come out. They begin talking about how kind of in our social media age, we're returning somewhat to this shame and honor culture that we, many, many years ago was just the norm in, in, in the world and in the West. And one of my favorite Christian thinkers, Alan Jacobs, he actually, a couple years ago, made this point. He said that the great moral crisis of our time, the great moral crisis of our time, is not sexual license, although that's a problem, but the great moral crisis of our time is vindictiveness. It's like petty, angry revenge, right? Vindictiveness. Now, if that's true, then what we need today is Psalm 32. We need this God who offers us a life of forgiveness. In the measure, in, in forgiveness in, in, in the midst of a desert of, of revenge and of anger. But we need it, but we avoid it. And because oftentimes the, the desert feels a lot safer, it can feel a lot better. But we need us, and the psalm is here to remind us of the God who loves us. So my two points this morning are what we avoid 
and what we need. And I will say right now that Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, before he passed, he wrote a book about forgiveness. And I'm using a lot of his ideas uh, this morning. But, okay, so what do we avoid? Well, we avoid guilt, we avoid forgiveness, and thus, because we do that, we avoid blessing. So we avoid guilt, forgiveness, and blessing. We avoid guilt. David, in this psalm, he kind of paints a a picture of this very clear sense that he has of the ways in which he and, and we also placate our sense of guilt for the things that we do that are wrong. That is to say, we, we've developed these very sophisticated means of explaining away or avoiding this, an internal reckoning for the things that we do wrong. So let's look at some of the ways that, that David avoids his guilt. Let's, starting in verse 3 is probably the most obvious. He says, for when I kept silent... Silence. Do not acknowledge your sin at all. Maybe you've experienced this in a relationship where you say, listen, I know I I yelled at my kids today, but tomorrow I'm I'm not going to yell at them. I'm never going to yell at them again. And in fact, I don't even need to bring it up because it's done. And let's just, statute of limitations, we'll all forget about it and move on. Y'all do that? Have y'all done that? I know I have. I don't know. Um, Well, this is what David says to that. Time cannot heal your moral guilt. Distance does not offer you forgiveness. It doesn't. We ignore our sin. Look at verse 5. He says, I did not cover my iniquity. What he's saying is that we have this tendency to avoid guilt by covering or justifying our sin. And we have all these very like, sophisticated mental hoops that we jump through to get there. I mean, think about the words that we use to describe ourselves. We say things like, listen, I'm just frugal. It's not, it's not that I'm greedy. I'm frugal, right? Or leadership. We say, let's say, listen, no, I'm not power hungry. I'm just using my God-given leadership gifts. Or comfortable. Like, listen, I'm not desperately clinging on to control. I just, I just like to be comfortable. I just like to know what's going on. Right? We, we justify our sin. We cover it. Look at verse 2. He says that the one who's been forgiven, their spirit has no deceit. What he's hitting on is this very deep-seated propensity that we have to lie to ourselves. And maybe you've had a conversation. Here's an example conversation of where you might be doing this, where you'd, you know, if you're in an argument or something with your spouse and you kind of come back, you're rehashing it, and you say something like, Oh, like, oh, I sounded angry when I said that to you. Oh, oh, it felt like I was trying to punish you with my words. No. I no, I would no, I would never do that. That was never and I was just confused. I wasn't angry. You see that? We minimize our sin. We we deceive ourselves. We ignore our sin, we justify our sin, we minimize it, we avoid guilt. Why do we do it? Well, because it's painful, and it's ugly, and guilt means that there's something wrong with me, and we'd rather not admit that. Well, another reason that we avoid and hide is because it turns out that forgiveness is actually pretty hard to believe in as well. So we avoid guilt. We also avoid forgiveness. There, in some ways, is the other side of the coin, And we could read Psalm 32 and be completely on board with all the talk about guilt and sin, and we think, yes, absolutely, I get that. But what really makes us uncomfortable is the quickness with which God forgives. Look at verse 
um, 5 again. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I will confess, and, I, and you forgave my iniquity, just like that. The completeness, the simplicity, the, the immediacy of God's forgiveness is, let's be honest, deeply uncomfortable. Because we all have, one author said that we have this lifelong infatuation with the idea that someone's keeping score. It's like, we, we just want, God, please leave something up to me. Like, give me some sense of my own participation in my forgiveness. In my own justification. And it shows its head when we engage in like self-loathing or internal put-downs or pity parties or just not, not because our sin breaks our relationship with God, but because we think that by beating ourselves up, we're going to somehow participate in our atonement or our forgiveness. If I beat myself up enough, then God will know that I'm serious and he will accept me again. Wallowing is just as much a rejection of God's forgiveness as avoiding or downplaying our sin. Psalm 32 says that genuine repentance starts when justifying, minimizing, ignoring sin stops. And when we recognize the goodness and love of God who will completely, simply, and immediately forgive you of all of it. Well, how do we know if we're still avoiding guilt or forgiveness. Well, Jesus actually gives us some diagnostics for that. The, the one that he, he mentions is, do you forgive other people? Like the, the, the humility of understanding the depth of our sin, the seriousness of it, looking at it clearly, and also the confidence that we have in the certainty of God's love, those two things in conjunction should free us completely to forgive other people. And if, we're not, if, we, if we don't feel free to give up, forgive other people, it's maybe because we don't understand these two things or we're avoiding one of them. If we avoid guilt or we avoid forgiveness, we will end up avoiding the blessing that David talks about in verse 1. I've been doing some premarital counseling uh, this, past, this summer for some couples in our church, and um, one of the things that I always try and impress upon them, and this is not something I made up, actually it was told to my wife and I when we were in premarital counseling, and I think it's, it's born to be out to be true, is I, I tell them, listen, what you need to understand is that intimacy, one of the ways that intimacy can come in your marriage is through conflict done well. Conflict itself could actually be the source of intimacy in your marriage which feels so, counter, so, so backwards, but it's true. Why? Well, because in conflict, like when the, the walls kind of come down and, we're, and we are exposed in front of our spouse, and all the ugliness, all the mess, everything is just out there in, in public. And when that other person doesn't shun us and run away from us, but instead turns towards us in love and forgives us and moves towards us like there, there is nothing better than that it's, it's amazing to, to be completely exposed and still, still loved and accepted 
Right? That's why it's just foolish to, to stonewall or to, or to you know, try and crush your spouse or to like, refuse to repent or forgive or all that stuff. It's foolish. Why? Because restored relationship is so sweet. That is a picture of the blessing that's on offer with God's forgiveness. He does not hold our sins over our heads. We've just sung that he does not remember our sin anymore. He moves towards us in love. And as it says in verse 10, his steadfast love surrounds us. The blessing of that restored relationship with him is, David said, it is so good. And that's why he, and he says it's foolish not, not to take advantage of it while you have the chance. That's why he says in verse 8 and 9, he's talking about the mule and the donkey and the bit and the bridle. He's saying, listen, this is so good. Go for it as soon as you possibly can because this blessing, the sweetness of this restored relationship is so precious. But we avoid it. Well, that's what we avoid. What is it that we need? Well, three things. We need his hand, we need his safety, and we need his covering. We need his hand. Verse 4 says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Well, what is the hand of the Lord like? Well, Scripture uses God's hands as a, a, for, it talks about God's hands doing lots of things. He uses it to create. He uses it at times to bring judgments. He uses it to provide. His hands are, are doing a lot of things. But what? But, but Psalm 32 is sung by God's people. So what is God's hand like for his people? That's the question. The, the Renaissance artist Rembrandt has a painting, probably his, maybe his most famous, one of his most famous paintings, certainly. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And if you know the story of the prodigal son, there's a young man who's left his home and he's gone off and squandered all his inheritance. When he's in desperation, he decides, I'm going to come back and I'm going to just prostrate myself before my dad. And he comes back. And the father, instead of shaming his son, he runs to him and embraces him. And the return of the prodigal son is a picture, it's a painting of that moment, that embrace. Okay? And Rembrandt is famous for just being a master of using light. And his, the light in this painting draws your attention directly to the father's hands. The boy is kneeling in front of him. And the father is standing with his hands on his back. And Rembrandt, there's been a lot of ink spilled about how different the two hands are. One of them is a hand that looks heavy. It looks strong. And it's on the boy's shoulder. And then the other hand is gentle and tender looking. And it's on his back. And what Rembrandt is saying is, he's saying the love of the father is both heavy and strong. And also tender and loving and caring. It's both of those things. God's hand is the same. God's hand is heavy, and it's gentle and tender. It's a hand of strength and of love. And we're right now raising some little, little kids, and one of the, like all the parenting books say that if you want to get your kid's attention, particularly if it's a son, you put your hand on them. Right? You put it on their shoulder or maybe on the top of their head or on the back of their neck, and you say, hey, look at me. I'm talking to you. And I think that is something of what David experienced with God 
where God is putting his strong and loving hand on the back of David's neck and he's saying, listen, don't live like this. It's not worth it. Don't do this. Return to me. Sometimes we need his hand on us. And sometimes we can feel the heaviness of it like David did. He describes, um, you know, we don't talk about this much, but David says that he experienced physical and mental ailments because he would not repent of his sins. Right, that was his experience of God's hand. And I'm like, we, we got to be careful drawing direct lines between, you know, ailments and, and, and repentance. We, like, we want to be careful with that, but it's at least a category in Psalm 32 that God would use those things to draw us back into his arms, into the embrace of, of his hands, right? We need his hand. We also need his safety. Look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Whether or not you're on it, you know that we live in a social media world and it is changing the, very, like the, the world in front of us. It's changing everything. And one of the big things that it's changing is our sense of identity. It used to be, I mean, even just probably 15 years ago, that the way that we were all supposed to pursue our identity was by looking inside and figuring out who the real us was, right? But now, that doesn't really work in a social media age. Because now, the way that we know who we are is how well we're able to project something that we want on social media or out there to the world. Even, not, even if it's not on social media, it's still what we do. Like, can you project your identity? It's not who you are, it's about who you want to be. But the problem with this is that, and we've all probably experienced this, is that who we actually are, it's a lot stickier than who we want to be. And who we want to be changes, and we're not sure if we can quite successfully pro project it when we just keep coming back to who we actually are and who we want to be just kind of, it's, 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 it's easy, it's, it flitters away. But who we actually are is it's pretty sticky. It's pretty hard to get away from. What Psalm 32 says is it says that God knows you, the real you. He knows who you really are. He knows when your public image is falling apart, he still knows you. He knows every aspect of your broken heart and your broken, imperfect life. He knows it. And God says to you, I'm a hiding place for you. I'm a place of safety. In me, you don't have to perform. In me, you can confess everything that's ugly in your heart and you will find in me love and acceptance and forgiveness. He says, act now. He says, don't delay. Come into the safety of my arms and you'll find in me hands that will not push you away but that will hold you close and keep you safe. We need his safety. And finally, we need his covering. I'll actually close with this. One of the big questions of this psalm is this, who will cover our sin? And in verse 5, David says, listen, I'm done covering my sin. I've tried it. It is not working. I'm done. Why, does, why is David able to say that? Because God covers his sin. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
You see, the reason that we're justifying or minimizing or ignoring our sin or, or trying to, maybe trying to punish ourselves for it is that we know deep down in our hearts that our sin must be covered. It has to be covered somehow. And David says, listen, God knows all of me. He knows everything that who I am is just exposed in front of him. And he covers my sin. I don't need to because he covers it. You know, Psalm 32 is actually quoted in the New Testament in Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, he quotes verses 1 and 2. And he says, you see, David understood, King David understood that God covers sin. He understood that he does that. But what David maybe wasn't clear on, or maybe what David was accepting in faith without a full picture of, is how God covers sin. Right? He understood that God covers sin, but he's not, he didn't have a full picture of how God covers sin. And Paul says that now we know. We now know how God covers sin. But not only that, as, as we actually get a fuller picture of the how, we're actually given a deeper understanding, far more than David himself. We actually get a deeper understanding, a fuller picture of how much this God loves us. Paul says a couple verses before he quotes Psalm 32, he says a couple verses before in Romans that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not, that's not a word we're throwing around a lot, right? Propitiation is, uh, it's a Bible word, and it means that God, um, that God's wrath had to be satisfied in some way. His wrath against sin had to be satisfied some way. And that Jesus did the work needed to satisfy it, to satisfy it. Now, we've said in maybe not so many words that we don't take our sin seriously enough. Right? That's why we're justifying, minimizing, ignoring. We don't take our sin seriously enough. And we might be tempted to think that actually God is calling to us to take it seriously so that he doesn't have to. We could be, it's, it's almost like we're saying, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my sin really seriously, and then I'm going to repent. And God says, I'm glad you take it seriously. Now I don't have to. And we can just kind of forget all about it and like get rid of it. No, that's not what's happening at all. Right? God takes our sin far more seriously than we do. In fact, him covering our sin is not him taking it lightly at all. Because we get to experience forgiveness like that. But snapping your fingers does not buy forgiveness. We're not forgiven by snapping our fingers. There is always a cost. There is always a cost. And we can experience the blessing of restored relationship because Jesus bore the weight of God's displeasure instead of us. We get it for free, but it costs God his son. There's always a cost. Cost God his son. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying David could not cover his own sin, but he did not have to. Because Jesus hung on the cross completely naked, completely uncovered, completely exposed to all the shame and pain and guilt of the cross. 
The Bible says that although he had done nothing wrong, he removed the covering of God's safety and love to be covered with our guilt and our shame. Why would he do that? To be the propitiation for our sins. That his innocent blood would cover us, would wash us clean, would make us right with God so that God could turn towards us, so he could forgive us, so that he could make us his own, so that we could experience and know the blessing, the sweetness of restored relationship with him. And that is, at the end of the day, the, the, the expansive, life-changing, altering beauty of Psalm 32. That we can say David, in some ways, was dealing with abstractions, but we have the clear picture of what it means for us to be forgiven and the totality and completeness of God's forgiveness in Christ. And, and as we see Jesus dying for us like that, as we see that he would go to death so that we can have life, that's when we really, and when we really start to understand and dwell on that reality, then we will, we will run to him confessing our sins. You're not gonna, we're not going to have to avoid our guilt. We're not going to have to doubt that forgiveness is real. Because in Christ, the forgiveness of God becomes tangibly real to us. It'll be, and in Him, we can experience the blessing and joy of restored relationship with God. That is the oasis in the middle of a desert that Psalm 32 has for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, how we need you. Father, how we need you to cleanse us of all of our sins. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus we have just that. Father, draw us to him through these words from Psalm 32. We thank you that we have the blessing offered here, the blessing promised here of your forgiveness, and of life with you because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.